Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, really glad you're with us for the Thursday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We have good, bad, and crazy martinis for you today. We're also brought to you in part by X-Chair. Uh, it's not too often that I'm envious of the stuff that Jim gets to try, but the X-Chair is certainly one of them. And Jim, on days like this, when we're combing through multiple Supreme Court decisions and lots of other big news, it's always nice to do so in comfort, right? Greg, X-Chair has made my time at my desk not only more productive, but it's honestly my favorite place to sit in the house for any reason. Not only does X-Chair's patented dynamic variable lumbar, or DVL, offer the ultimate customized support, but my X-Chair could even give me a massage or heat up or cool down. And now, thanks to X-Chair's new FS360 armrests, I can even adjust my armrest to the perfect position. All of these unique X-Chair features help the hours at my desk fly by in complete comfort. And that's why I love my X-Chair. Go to xchairmartini.com now. That's the letter X, chair, M-A-R-T-I-N-I.com or call 1-844-4X-CHAIR for $100 off your order. X-Chair has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort and you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 per month. Once again, xchairmartini.com. All right, Jim, a very busy day at the Supreme Court. We still did not get the Dobbs decision. That could come very soon. It's obviously going to come fairly soon since we're almost out of June here. But uh, let's uh, talk about the biggest decision probably that came down today, and it's our good martini by a 6-3 to three ruling. The high court striking down onerous provisions of uh, New York State gun control laws, specifically that law-abiding citizens need to show cause for wanting to get a concealed carry permit. Uh, Justice Thomas writing for the majority and doing so uh, very well today. Uh, This is towards the end of his majority opinion. The constitutional right to bear arms in public for self-defense is not a second-class right subject to an entirely different body of rules than the other Bill of Rights guarantees. We know of no other constitutional right that an individual may exercise only after demonstrating to government officers some special need That is not how the First Amendment works when it comes to unpopular speech or the free exercise of religion. It's not how the Sixth Amendment works when it comes to a defendant's right to confront the witnesses against him. And it is not how the Second Amendment works when it comes to public carry for self-defense. New York's proper cause requirement violates the 14th Amendment in that it prevents law-abiding citizens with ordinary self-defense needs from exercising their right to keep and bear arms. We therefore reverse the judgment of the Court of Appeals and remand the case for further proceedings. Uh, Also here, Jim, uh, and a hat tip to Eric Erickson for for flagging this, uh, Justice Thomas actually citing the majority opinion in Dred Scott, not something you see a lot on the Supreme Court, but uh, one of the things that uh, Chief Justice Taney wrote in that uh, particular decision, which of course is the most infamous and and ugly perhaps in Supreme Court history, uh, Taney was worried that uh, if they were freed, that blacks would have the rights and privileges and and immunities of citizens, including the right, quote, to keep and carry arms wherever they went. Therefore, citing the idea that 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 was a right inherent uh, enshrined in the Second Amendment. So, uh, Jim, a big decision on the Second Amendment. Uh, How significant is it? It is pretty darn significant. Um, It's not just the New York law. Obviously, this will uh, help challenge any other states that were contemplating this. And just on the face of it, this always seemed like something that was likely to lose a 
Supreme Court challenge, particularly a Supreme Court, you know, it has largely the same makeup that it issued the Heller decision, so, uh, you know, upholding the idea that the Second Amendment is indeed an individual right. The idea that, well, you have this constitutional right, but only if the government says it's okay. It was really always going to be a very tough, uh, tough sell at the Supreme Court. Um, the makeup of the court and this, you know, turning out to be a six to three vote is not surprising. I think what's what really makes this feel like an earthquake is that because of the Uvalde shooting and other recent events, there is this new push for gun control. And here is the, the Supreme Court saying, hey, here's this New York law that a whole bunch of gun control advocates and, uh, you know, just generally Democrats and folks on the left think is just hunky-dory and terrific and the way it should work all across the country. And it violates the Second Amendment and it cannot continue. Nope, sorry. Now, I think this was always destined to generate some extreme reactions um, you were always going to hear people, you know, flying off the handle. Um, I, the, the, I, the, my first observation when I saw this and I saw the, you know, just the volcanic reactions from gun control advocates was that, ah, so, you know, you guys feel that, you know, that this was a issue of intense public dispute, uh, that the constitution was not clear on one way or the other. I think that's extremely disputed, debatable and disputable, but fine. And you feel like the Supreme Court just stepped in and swept away all those legitimate concerns and tried to impose its own vision of how the law ought to be based on its own particular interpretation of the Constitution and just ignored all of these duly elected legislators. Uh, Greg, when you see that, I was like, oh, so now you know how pro-lifers feel about Roe versus Wade. Right. And you're going to hear people you know, just, just spittle-flecked fury denouncing this, uh, this decision and then probably later today, they will insist that Roe v. Wade must be held in place and not see any contradiction between that, which I think is fascinating. Um, you're going to hear crazy, unhinged responses all day long. I, it's not surprising that as of this recording, Keith Olbermann is a strong contender for the nuttiest and craziest reaction of the day. He's been quite out there for quite some time and seems to be getting worse. He has another Twitter tirade. And Greg, if you'll indulge me just to, you know... It has become necessary to dissolve the Supreme Court of the United States. Yeah. Uh, the, the first step for a state is the court has now forced guns upon to ignore this ruling. Great. You're a court. Why and how do you think you can enforce your rulings? Ignore the court. Greg, he really is calling for a constitutional crisis. He, he really wants the executive and legislative branches to say, I mean, quite literally, you know, he goes on to say, uh, let's see the court try to enforce it. Ignore SCOTUS. Tell them to send the SCOTUS army here if they'd like to enforce this ruling from their House of Lords pretending to be a court. He wants the executive and legislative branch to ignore the judicial branch ruling. We've had judicial supremacy in this country going back two centuries, right? If the Supreme Court says a law doesn't, you know, violates the Constitution, that's it. It's over. You, know, you have to repeal it. You cannot ignore it and dare the Supreme Court to try to enforce it. And yet here is this guy who was once a, you know, respected liberal commentator, host on MSNBC, et cetera. And he's basically screaming to uh, Democrats to ignore this. And New York Governor Kathy Hochul didn't quite come out and say she was going to do this. But she did make this kind of nonsensical rant about, oh, well, if that's the case, uh, you know, the Second Amendment was written when there's muskets. So I'm going to allow muskets or something like that. Uh, Greg, do you... Judging by her comments, do you think Kathy Hochul thinks she can appeal a Supreme Court decision? 
Yeah, it's not a negotiation. It's not a negotiation. Yeah. Here, here is the uh, here's the clip Jim's referring to. This is Governor Hochul, literally minutes after this decision came down. So clearly, she was expecting this. And I'm sorry, this dark day has come. They were supposed to go back to what was in place since 1788, when the Constitution of the United States of America was ratified. And I would like to point out to the Supreme Court justices that the only weapons at the time were muskets. I'm prepared to go back to muskets. I don't think they envision the high-capacity assault weapon magazines intended for battlefields as being covered from it, but I guess we're just going to have to disagree. Uh, Jim, so yeah, the constitutional rationality of the left is uh, questionable <laughs> at most here. Uh, and, and so, you know, it's not just Keith Olbermann. You've got uh, Democrats all over the place calling for the uh, calling the legitimacy of the court into question. They think that Gorsuch wasn't legitimate. They don't think Kavanaugh was legitimate. They don't think Barrett was legitimate. Uh, and so, and then this whole argument about the muskets, uh, you know, that's like, okay, so the only freedom of the press is with printed, printed press. So no TV, no radio, no internet. We can shut all that down now. I mean, just the dumbest possible reaction to some of this stuff. Yeah, I mean, uh, how about women women in elected office? What's the Constitution <laughs> back then say about that? So my, my Twitter observation, uh, I don't quote Latin nearly as much as, say, William F. Buckley or any of my other, you know, uh, distinguished colleagues. But I do know the phrase, Roma locuta cosa finita est. So recently, Rome has spoken, the matter is settled. And every now and then when I get a lot of guff from a teenage son or a near teenage son, I will roll that out to say, no, a decision has been made. It is the final decision. There are no further appeals. There are There is no next step. It's settled. The matter is settled. We're going to do X instead of Y. Um, and it just seems utterly appropriate. I mean, the issue on this of can the state say you have to prove your need for a gun? It's over. It's done. Porky Pig has said, bidip, bidip, bidip. that's all, folks. And <laughs> Ferris Bueller has come out from, in his bathrobe telling everyone to go home. The matter is settled, Governor. Time to go home. As, as ludicrous as her reaction was. I think I'd rather listen to that than Andrew Cuomo coming out and going, the Supreme Court is wrong. <laughs> yeah, I don't miss him at all. And anyway, hey, remember when uh, Andrew Cuomo was considered to be a, a presidential candidate or maybe even a, a quick uh, stand-in for Joe Biden in, in uh, 2020? Yeah, those are uh, good right. times. They said he could be the next Michael Avenatti. <laughs> in, you know, I mean, in a way, he was. Uh, well, 2024, not that far away, uh, less than two years, in fact, by my calendar. But uh, Jim, we're brought to you in part today by the Presidential Election Project. Imagine a scenario in 2024 that's similar to the controversies of 2020. A lot of questions about irregularities in votes and debates and recounts of votes in key states. Except this time, instead of Vice President Mike Pence, it's Vice President Kamala Harris who's being urged to interpret her role in the process as one where she has the right to determine which electoral votes count. And why? Because the Electoral Count Act just isn't specific enough. The Presidential Election Project wants to see this changed. Go to presidentialelectionproject.com now. Sign up to get updates and learn more about this very important procedural ceremony and what steps Congress is taking to reform and clarify our electoral process. Again, the project urges you to visit presidentialelectionproject.com and sign up to get the updates so that by 2024, there is no question that Vice President Harris will not have the power to overturn those results. Presidential Election Project, 
Dobbs.com. All right, Jim, as I mentioned, we have not gotten the uh, Dobbs decision. Pretty much everybody's resigned to the fact now that this is going to be the last decision handed down in this session of the uh, Supreme Court. If, uh, you know, assassination attempts and protests in front of people's houses and so forth wasn't going to expedite the process, not sure anything else is going to either. So, so we'll see about that. But for some reason, Democrats have a weird new foe in this whole debate. I don't get it. And maybe you can uh, shine some light on it. But the uh, the news this week uh, out of Reason Magazine points out that Senators Dianne Feinstein, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, and Amy Klobuchar have a problem with Google search results pointing people towards pregnancy centers. This is how Reason puts it. Uh, in their letter to Google, the senators give the impression that all crisis pregnancy centers falsely represent themselves as abortion clinics. Quote, we write today regarding disturbing new reports that Google has been directing users who search for abortion services towards anti-abortion fake clinics, also known as crisis pregnancy centers or pregnancy resource centers, they state. They call on Google to limit the appearance, this is quote, quote, of anti-abortion fake clinics or so-called crisis pregnancy centers in Google search results. Google ads and on Google Maps when users search for abortion clinic, abortion pill, or similar terms. They ask that Google attach disclaimers to crisis pregnancy center websites that appear in search results. Jim, I just don't understand how people who claim to be pro-choice instead of pro-abortion in every possible case uh, can come out here and be totally pulling their hair out or lighting their hair on fire over the fact that somebody who wasn't sure what they wanted to do with their pregnancy or might even have been leaning towards abortion, might have talked to someone who convinced them to have their child. The horror. You know, Greg, stories like this actually make me a little more sympathetic to the, the voices on the right who are like, we got to break up big tech. Yeah, because for a long time, my attitude was uh, a lot of claims of monopolies are exaggerated or overhyped. But let's face it, if you're listening to this podcast, is it, if you ever, you know, if you look for something, most people look for it on Google. It's become a verb. Why don't you go Google that? I have yet to hear anybody saying, why don't you Bing that? <laughs> I've never heard, you know, and, and go back a little bit. I don't remember anybody saying, why don't you Alta Vista that? Uh, for those of us with happy <laughs> memories of the early days of the dot-com boom. Um, Google has become this very powerful pervasive, not, not the only way, but it's a very clear way of how people find this. And everybody's kind of, Google's algorithm is a mystery. And if you type in a particular search, you're kind of like, well, you know, it seems like the most relevant uh, ones come up, but sometimes it doesn't for, you know, like, well, what, who decides what makes that algorithm make certain things come by the top? And oh, by the way, my understanding is, is that very rarely do people click on that second page of Google search results. So if you're not in the top 10, if you're really not even in the top two or three, you're probably not going to get you know the results from a Google search. So maybe it's possible Google has reached a point where it is uh, an uncomfortably large and near monopolistic, not just in providing a service to to the public, but it's becoming but basically in how people learn things, how people figure stuff out. Uh, because it's an actually in very few cases will you then go through to find the primary sources or contrast it with other ones or something like that. If you Google a question, you know, what is this rash? <laughs> you know, there's an by the way, if you ever try to the most common search term, search uh, queries into Google, you'll find an unbelievably disturbing variety there. But anyway, um, when you see the government, you know, Google has an enormous amount of power. And here we have, you know, members of the federal government saying, Hey, Google, we want to decide what your top search results should be. We want to decide what people should find 
based on you know pipe typing something into a Google search query. That should frighten the heck out of us. This is absolutely an un, uh, uh, an exaggeration or, or you know going well beyond the power. And this does become I don't know whether you qualify it as corporatism or something like that, but basically a state with case where the government is attempting to determine what you learn from this uh, allegedly a private company independent of gov government control or persuade. And you know what it reminded me of, uh, Greg, and I'm going to go way back into the Wayback Machine for this. The year 2006. ABC Television, this is in the fall of 2006, leading up to the midterm elections that went very badly for the Republicans. But they aired this two-part miniseries called The Path to 9-11. And it was created by uh, Cyrus, no written by Cyrus Norristra, um, or Naurasta, who was one of the guys behind 24. And it was, in some ways, an exceptionally tough-on-Clinton uh, portrayal of the U.S. government's response and actions leading up to 9-11. Um, I don't think it necessarily had um, Bill Clinton in it. Uh, notable, it had, had a couple of big names in it. Harvey Keitel was playing. Uh, he was the the FBI agent who was at the, at the went to work for the World Trade Center and died in the attacks, but who had been like the you know the, the main guy uh, at the FBI. Um, it had a basically portrayed Bill Clinton seeming kind of irresponsible. Really, almost everybody in government uh, came across looking unflattering, shall we say? And several you know State Department officials came across as being extremely uh, unhelpful to efforts to track down Osama bin Laden. And several members of the Senate, several Senate Democrats, including Democratic leader Harry Reid at that point, uh, wrote a letter to Robert Iger, by the way, longtime Democratic donor and a man on the left generally, he basically says, um, you know, showing this is going to be a gross miscarriage of your corporate and civic responsibility to the law. The Communications Act of 1934 provides your network with a free broadcast license. Nowhere in this public integration will obligate the duty to broadcasters to serve the civic needs of democracy by providing an open and accurate discussion of political ideas and events. Basically, this was like, you know, Senate saying, we will come after your broadcast license if you air this. Now, the good news is Disney did not, you know, did not buckle down. ABC, and it did air uh, back on the uh, 10th and 11th of, of 2006. However, to this day, the path to 9-11 has never been rebroadcast on any other network or any other form, and it has never been released on DVD, streaming, or any other form. If you did not tape it, most likely on VHS uh, back then, I don't think we had DVRs, we were all that common back then. If you did not tape it then, it is impossible to see this, which I think is something of a victory to the Democrats who saw this as something that people should never be allowed to say. So I just, you know, this is an unnerving alliance between powerful democratic voices in government and a big uh, corporation. And it doesn't appear that Google has necessarily responded positively to this. But I think there's just this arrogant assumption on the part of these Senate Democrats that we can tell these companies what they ought to do because that's where it is our job to tell Americans what to think, what kind of information they are allowed to access. Yeah, I got to say, Jim, it's pretty chilling uh, where on the one hand, you've got these people who are genuinely upset that women decide to have their babies because they were directed somewhere other than an abortion clinic. And then on, in response to that, they want to shut down uh, knowledge of such places to people. Uh, in an attempt to make sure that their children do not live. And then, uh, you know, shutting down access to information as well. Democrats, uh, very, very ugly.
All right, let's talk about NetChoice. Uh, speaking of the Senate, the Three Martini Lunch brought to you in part today by NetChoice. As Americans, innovation has always been what makes us different. America's tech industry outpaces the world. We have the most innovative companies that power our economy and way of life, and free market innovation is what makes us number one. But some in Washington want to put big government in charge of America's top innovators, attacking our own in the name of competition, while our true competitors like Europe and China close the gap. NetChoice believes congressional conservatives must stand for American innovation, not big government, by rejecting progressive antitrust proposals. They encourage you to tell your senator to oppose Senator Amy Klobuchar's Senate Resolution 2992. What did this ad come at a good time? Yeah, do you really want Congress uh, to deciding what, the, what, uh, what different companies can do? Uh, learn more about this fight and send a letter to your representatives at netchoice.org slash 2992. This message was brought to you by NetChoice. All right, Jim, on to our crazy martini now. And you know, the FDA has been in the news a lot the last couple of years. Uh, people have been waiting for them to make decisions, of course, on vaccine approval and all sorts of other things uh, ever since uh, the COVID pandemic began. Their track record uh, is up for debate, of course. But yesterday, the Biden administration through the FDA deciding for some reason to ban jewel vaping products <laughs> in the United States. And so uh, here's the report from the New York Post. The Food and Drug Administration is set to ban Juul e-cigarettes from being sold in the United States. The Wall Street Journal reported on Wednesday that the FDA could announce the decision as soon as Wednesday, which it did. The agency had been investigating Juul for the past two years while the company sought approval to continue selling its nicotine pods. Shares of Altria Group, the cigarette maker, which owns a 35% stake in Juul, we're down by more than 9% as of midday on, on Wednesday. So, Jim, I'm not a smoker, never have been. I'm not a vapor, never have been. Uh, I don't think either one of them is particularly good for your health. Cigarettes are probably worse. But the small L libertarian in me is wondering what the heck the government is doing even getting involved in this situation uh, and why now? It's just very bizarre on a number of different levels. Yeah, nothing else facing the country, right? Right, guys? Nothing, nothing, nothing you know, no other problems, nothing, you know. Look, I think the original plan had been to stop people from smoking by making inflation so bad that they no longer could afford to. <laughs> um, I, I don't smoke myself either, but I have heard from some folks who have, who do use Juul, who do vape, and who basically say, that's what helped me quit smoking. I know it's not as good for me. I know there's still some uh, tobacco and other, you know, potentially harmful substances, but I know there's less, and this is like a stepping stone to getting to the quitting point. Uh, and it just seems spectacularly wrongheaded if our goal is to get people to stop smoking. But it also feels like a wild overstepping of uh, you know, a, a howitzer against a flea kind of response. Uh, you know, yeah, we'd like people to stop smoking. And, you know, if given a choice between not smoking at all and smoking jewel vapes cartridges and stuff like that, we'd probably prefer people didn't smoke at all. But, you know, we did go through this. Like, like there are a whole bunch of things people do in life that are not particularly healthy and, and they're still legal because we've experienced with <clears throat> prohibition it doesn't work out that well. You know, human beings like to do things that feel good, even if they are not in their long-term health interests. And you kind of have to, the freedom means the freedom to make decisions that we don't necessarily agree with. Um, in this case, so there's a couple, so what's going on here? The first is I do think there's something severely broken within the Food and Drug Administration. I think we saw this really vividly during the pandemic. I think obviously the kinds of people who go into approving particular drugs or treatments uh, or foods or, or products like this generally are rank among the most risk averse people on earth. So our entire process of getting government approval to do something or to have a particular product or to have a particular drug is done by people who 
Uh, never mind like skydiving on the weekends. I assume these people never jaywalk. I assume these people, you know, throw out the milk a day before the sell-by date because they're afraid it might go bad. Um, they are, you know, and, and just lot, you know, different people have different risk tolerances and the FDA just, just, you know, does not attract people who have higher risk tolerances. Uh, the second thing I kind of wonder here is that Bill Clinton was kind of the expert of what they call the micro initiative. Um, you know, five days a week, instead of having a, you know, cabinet secretary come out and announce this is what we're doing, uh, he would get involved in what seemed like a relatively minor decision. But the thinking was that there was some small slice of the electorate for whom this sort of decision mattered a great deal. And the idea is that you had the president there at the Department of Agriculture, Department of Health and Human Services, uh, Department of Transportation, you know, announcing these little regulatory changes that sound good or feel good, that one, the president you know, gets a lot more attention and the president looks good. And this is all part of, you know, uh, Bill Clinton being that, I feel your pain, you know, caring guy. Um, I believe it was Dana Carvey in his exceptionally short-lived ABC sit, uh, uh, sketch show in which he portrayed Bill Clinton um, breastfeeding a piglet uh, to demonstrate <laughs> how caring and nurturing he was and all that kind of stuff. I, I assume this, and if the Biden administration announces it and starts touting it, is some version of that. You know, that, look, we know the big issues are going bad. We know immigration uh, is terrible. We know the inflation is terrible. Gas prices, food prices. Uh, nobody's talking much about the war with the Ukraine anymore, but it doesn't seem like things are going great there. Americans are really you know, supply chain issues, all, all that kind of stuff. So what we're going to do is we're going to load up the, the the load up the news cycle with as many other issues as possible. We're just going to try to get people talking about every, uh, January six uh, abortion, gun control. Blah, we're just going to put it all out there, and hopefully that mitigates the effect of an election cycle where everybody's voting against the Democrats because they're really mad at Biden and congressional Democrats for inflation being so bad. I assume that's some of the mentality here. I don't think it's going to work. I, and again, it just feels like, you know, Biden didn't run on this. Nobody, nobody, nobody in Congress is announcing this. The FDA, entirely unelected, is just decided, you know what, we're doing this. And people who've gotten used to using Juul as a way of moving away from smoking, I assume they're going on a run, you know, they, they're going on a run uh, of grabbing all the ones they can before the FDA uh, ban starts getting enforced. It strikes me as a particularly bizarre and uh, counterproductive decision. I think it's going to backfire, but we're probably going to have some pain along the way. You know, Biden's also put the kibosh on menthol cigarettes. Uh, that is going to be a campaign issue in certain districts this year. Mark my words, that was not a popular decision in a lot of uh, a lot of urban areas. Uh, Jim, I don't I don't get this. Usually, the Democrats' solution to all this is just tax the living daylights out of tobacco products and other sin taxes, as they like to call them. But uh, for some reason, they decided to go full ban here. I don't think this is going to go well for them. It's not like it's a definitive issue for most people, given all the other horribles going on right now. Uh, but it might be just a little extra motivation for some people to show up and stick it to them. I was going to say a lot. You know, I understand. I think, and I think we really ought to encourage. You hear a lot of people. You know, oh, apathy. You know, it's hurt, destroying this country. And uh, my old friend and colleague Jonah Goldberg used to say, "No, no, no. The country needs not more activists, but more inactivists. If you're not that worried about what's going on in the country, that means things are going pretty well, right? You people get really active in politics when things are going wrong. They can actually feel it in their lives. I'd really have a federal government that you didn't have to pay any attention to." Oh, it yeah. just did its job and, you know, didn't go through that kind of stuff. When you do these little things where just one day you decide, yeah, nobody can have menthol cigarettes anymore. People sit up and notice if they've been smoking menthol cigarettes. Now, whether they should or shouldn't is kind of separate from the issue of should the federal government be coming along and saying, no, you cannot have that. 
in the absence of some sort of really strong evidence that this is uh, uh, you know an immediate threat to people. Because everybody knows smoking is bad. Go go rewatch uh, Aaron Eckhart in Thank You for Smoking. <laughs> people know how bad it is. Written by Chris Buckley, by the way. So anyway, it's not Friday yet, is it, Greg? No, not quite, not quite. But man, this is this might be our most libertarian episode in a long time, but certainly justified, uh, I think, in every single case. Uh, have a great day. We'll see you again tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Uh, do subscribe to the podcast if you don't already. Uh, please tell a friend about us as well. Thank you very much for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Please keep those coming. Uh, also, find us on your home devices. All you have to say to your device, which is listening to you all the time, every word, uh, is play Three Martini Lunch Podcast. And uh, follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great Thursday and join us again on Friday for the next Three Martini Lunch. Tennessee Senator Marsha Blackburn joins me to discuss her efforts to protect our military from the left's woke agenda and the effort to separate parents from children. I'm Sarah Carter. On the latest Sarah Carter Show, Senator Blackburn also explains how our skyrocketing energy costs could soon lead to food shortages, all because President Biden refuses to acknowledge reality. Join us. Follow the Sarah Carter Show at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.